0: You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, friends. Welcome to Midtown. Glad you're here. Thanks for joining us today. You guys, we are people who are always ruled by something. And there's one item in our lives that illustrates this fact perfectly. Toothbrushes. Toothbrushes, true story. Show of hands, in this room, who brushes their teeth? Yeah, nice, it better be every hand. If you didn't raise your hand, people will start scooting away from you, the rest of service, it will definitely happen. I'm glad everyone raised their hands. Good, dental hygiene in midtown. Yeah, for all of you, here's a truth about your life. You are ruled by your toothbrush. Whether it's once or twice a day, whether it's for a minute or two minutes, you have subjected yourself to the rulership of a 7-inch piece of plastic with nylon bristles on the end. That's happened. You are ruled by King Colgate. Or King Crest, if that's your brand preference. But, what if tomorrow, when you wake up, you become fond of the notion of being free from the tyrannical rule of King Colgate or King Crest? What if tomorrow you decide you don't want to be ruled by your toothbrush any longer? You want to spark a revolution for freedom from your toothbrush. You can definitely make that choice if you want to. But eventually, you'll find that that freedom leads you to another ruler Captain Cavity, <laughs> General Gingivitis, <laughs> President Plaque. Friends, when you brush your teeth, you have a choice of what to be ruled but one thing is certain, something will rule your teeth eventually. And while that principle is definitely true when it comes to our teeth and gums, it goes well beyond our dental hygiene as well. Everyone is ruled by something. That is, every single one of us has something about which we would say, this thing, or this relationship, or this principle, or this idea, or this practice has ultimate or supreme purpose in my life. Everyone serves some sort of king. As the great modern poet Bob Dylan put it, You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble, you might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world, you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. And the truth is, in our modern Western world, we don't like to think of our lives in that way. We like to think of ourselves as people who are free from all rule. We are enlightened and modern people who have left behind the rulership to the ancient age of religion and politics and the rest. We are free agents with no rulers in our lives. But that's actually a misunderstanding of what freedom really is. That's only a partial definition of freedom. See, freedom definitely includes things that we are freed from, but it also includes things that we are freed to. You can be freed from oppressive institutions or unhealthy patterns of behavior, but you're also freed to a different sort of rulership. When the founding fathers of the U.S. sought freedom, they understood this. It was freedom from oppressive British rule, but it was also freedom to a new kind of democratic rule. When someone leaves an unhealthy relationship, they are free from the rule of a bad partner, but they're also free to a new rule of better relational health in some way or another. See, freedom in the truest sense of the word word does not mean absence of rulership. It means the ability to choose who I'm ruled by. And so our lives are not defined by the choice of either being free or being ruled. They're defined by which ruler we will choose with our freedom and what sort of person that ruler will make us into. Uh, there's a great theologian named Thomas Merton who describes this in his book, No Man is an Island. He says, freedom is not given to us merely as a firework to be shot off into the air. There are some people who, think to think, who seem to think that their acts are freer in proportion as they are without purpose. That's like saying someone is richer if he throws money out the window than if he spends it. Neither the spending of money nor the waste of money is what makes someone rich. He is rich by virtue of what he has, and his riches are valuable to him for what he can do with them. As for freedom, it grows no greater by being wasted or spent, but it is given to us as a talent to be traded with until the coming of Christ. Friends, the sort of people we become, the way that our lives take shape, are directly connected to who or what in our freedom we choose to be ruled by. And every day, we're being sold messages, implicitly or explicitly, about what we should be ruled by. We're sold the message that work should be our ruler. America is a nation obsessed with accomplishment and productivity. And so we locate our purpose and our significance and our identity in what we do, our profession. And the result is that we become ruled by our work. According to the International Labor Association, Americans on average work two weeks more per year than the second highest working nation in the world. That's Japan. Americans are also the only developed country in the world that does not legally mandate paid leave or parental leave. And it's one of only two countries that does not have mandatory sick leave. And even when we get time off, 50% of American workers don't even use all of it at the end of the year. We are obsessed with overwork, and it's destroying our mental and emotional and physical health. There was a recent review from the National Library of Medicine of more than 200 studies that spanned more than two decades, and they found a clear link between overwork and depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and addiction. Work is a bad ruler. And so oftentimes we pivot to other rulers. We're sold the message, for instance, that a dating relationship or a marriage should become our ruler. Our culture glorifies relational intimacy as the ultimate source of the good life, of our identity. And all you have to do is scroll through your streaming services to see this to be true. The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise, Love is Blind, Too Hot to Handle, Are You the One, Love Island, Love at First Swipe, Farmer Wants a Wife, Perfect Match, Singles Inferno, Burning Love, Married at First Sight, 90 Day Fiance. That was just one breath. Love on the spectrum. Jordan's a big fan, clearly. We glorify relational intimacy as a ruler in our lives. Just look at the TV we watch. The online dating industry now accrues more than $10 billion a year. That's more than twice what it was 10 years ago, and it's expected to double again in the next decade. And yet Americans, spending all of this money on making dating or marriage our ruler, report record high rates of relationship dissatisfaction. According to a recent Pew Research study, 67% of Americans, 67% say that their dating life is, quote, not going well. And 75% say it is very or somewhat difficult to find someone to date. There's article after article in the New York Times, Washington Post. You can look these up. Many of these same people have reported deeply discouraging and often traumatic encounters with sexual intimacy in their lives. Now, there's a recent tweet that went viral. It had tens of thousands of likes and retweets that expresses the malaise in over dating and sex in our culture. Uh, the tweeter says this. I don't think older generations realize how, all caps, terrifying, dating is for the current generation. There's no commitment. Everyone talks about, let's see where this goes. There are no labels. Absolutely chaotic out here. Our relationships are bad rulers. And so many times, we're just taught to make ourselves our own rulers. That's actually the default posture of our culture. We live with the assumption that every other ruler is inherently bad, and so we make ourselves king or queen of our lives. There's a great philosopher named Charles Taylor who talks about this. He calls it the age of authenticity. He describes our time as an age where we are trained to believe that health and life and wholeness come to us when we become rulers of ourselves and when we are driven primarily by our desires at the expense of all else. And this has been reinforced in our culture by thinkers like Freud. Freud claimed that the squelching of any personal desire is either oppression from the outside or repression from the inside. And true freedom, true life, comes when you rule or are now ruled by your desires. There's a sociologist named Robert Bella who put it this way. He said, we have been led to believe that the self is sacred. Just as in an earlier time it was thought never fitting to deny God, now it seems never right to deny oneself. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Do you, (laughs) boo-boo. Our Burger King ads put it about as concisely as it could be put. BK, have it your way. You rule. That's the slogan. We are all taught to be our own ruler. And the result of self-rulership in our time is an unprecedented epidemic of loneliness, hopelessness, and purposelessness. Study after study shows us that in the time where we become the most self-ruled, we've also become the most self-destructive. Friends, we're always going to be ruled by something. And we live in a world of bad rulers. And if we want to become people of deep health and life, it will mean becoming people who are ruled by the right things in the right ways. And that's exactly what we see in the passage we're going to read together today. Uh, We're continuing in our teaching series called Character Matters. We're going uh, today to explore a major pivot point in the history of the nation of Israel that we find in the book of 1 Samuel. They're given the opportunity to choose the right ruler. And while they ultimately make the wrong choice, they teach us in their own choice how we can become people who are ruled by the right so friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me uh, to the book of 1 Samuel. It's near the beginning of your Bible, uh, if you're flipping there. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. We're going to read the whole chapter together. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old, and your sons don't follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they're doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, we are determined to have a king over us. So that we may also be like other nations, and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice, set a king over them. Samuel then said to the people of Israel, each of you return home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys, oftentimes the Bible is blunt. Blunt. We'd so like to think that when we open this text, we're going to find some feel-good notions, some sentimental phrases, but the truth is that this library of texts is really honest, and that also means it's going to be really blunt a lot of the time. And right away, at the beginning of chapter 8, we get an example of this. We hear the blunt news that Samuel is old. He's not messing around, not wasting time. He's not over the hill. He's not entering his golden years. Dude is old. And it's not being blunt just to be mean here. This detail is included to indicate an important theme in the story. It's time for a leadership transition. See, Samuel has been ruling as a judge and prophet over Israel since we first heard him called back in 1 Samuel 3. We talked about that last week. And at this time in Israel's history, they consisted largely of scattered tribes and towns, and they didn't have a centralized, cohesive governing structure. And so judges would be appointed in particular times of need, and their job was specifically to find and outline in Deuteronomy, how they would rule. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy, the judges are told that they are to protect the widow, the orphan, and the refugee. That's an important part of God's law. God's people and God's law have, from the beginning, prioritized care for people on the margins. And in fact, in the Bible, you can often measure the health of a society based upon how they care for the poor and the marginalized and needy. That was one thing the judges did, but they also had to remain impartial in the way that they oversaw specific cases from tribe to tribe. It was common in that time, as is often true today, for the wealthy and popular to sway public opinion in court cases or to just straight-up bribe judges. And so they had to be people who were impartial to that sort of manipulation. And they also, judges in that day, would often travel from place to place in their work. Given the lack of a centralized system, they had to go from town to town. And they would help each of those towns to rightly live into God's call for justice and peace in their midst. And so we learn in the verses preceding chapter 8 here that Samuel has been doing great at judging. He's been doing it with great effectiveness, great righteousness, great peace and justice and love. Contrary to the corrupt leaders that preceded him, he has served as a good and just servant. But things aren't staying that way. See, Samuel makes a crucial error at the end of his career. He puts together a bad succession plan. He appoints his sons, Joel and Abijah, to be judges, and they flat out stink. The Bible, again, is really blunt about them. We only hear about Joel and Abijah once in the scriptures. It's right here in verse 3. Here's what they get They turned aside after gain, they took bribes, and perverted justice. That's them, Joel and Abijah. Cemented forever. Once again, nice and blunt. These two sons are scumbags. And in many ways, this text, if you remember what we talked about last week, harkens back to Eli. Remember the priest Eli appointed his sons as priests. And they too were scumbags. Unjust, abusive in their power. It's as if nepotism isn't the best way to go about governing things. (laughs) Shocker, right? And so that leaves the nation of Israel at a crossroads. They know that they have been called to be a community that is ruled by God's love and justice and peace. But they also know that as this old man Samuel dies, they won't have good leaders to implement that justice and peace and love. And more than that, we've learned in previous chapters in 1 Samuel that there are some impending military forces around them that are stoking fear in the people of Israel. And so when these elders are gathering together in verse 4, you can imagine the sort of emotions that they're feeling. They're feeling grief over the transition that they're about to go through. Grief over the loss of a good leader in Samuel. They're feeling fear about what the future might hold. Or they're feeling a sense of insecurity. They're unsure of who they are and what they might become without a good leader. And it's precisely in the middle of those experiences and those emotions that they're faced with an important question. Who or what will they choose as their ruler? That is, who or what will they choose to define their priorities, their action, their way of being in the world? And that's a crucial point to remember in this story. Friends, it's always in moments of our deepest grief, our deepest fear, or our deepest insecurity or anxiety that we are presented with the choice of what we're going to be ruled by. That the rulership in our lives comes to the surface. Our deepest moments of vulnerability and hardship will always reveal our deepest allegiances and priorities. And so if you want to know what rules your life, all you need to do is look at where you run to in moments of vulnerability or hardship. When you're filled with insecurity over your identity, where do you run to? When you're hit by fear of the future, where do you run to? When you're blindsided by grief or lament, where do you run to? The way you answer those questions will always reveal who or what is your ruler. And what we find in this passage, in the words and actions of Israel, is an example of choosing the wrong ruler. That's actually a central part of 1 Samuel at numerous times. We're talking about this series, Character Matters, right? We're looking at how the examples in 1 Samuel teach us character. Sometimes that's through good examples, and sometimes it's through bad ones. And today, we get a bad example, but we still learn what it looks like to develop good character in ourselves from this story. We learn that we need to be people who are ruled by the right ruler. And we learn that in four parts of the story. We learn it in the desire in the story. We learn it in the demand. We learn it in the delusion. And we learn it in the difference Desire, demand, delusion, and difference. First, the desire in the passage. Notice the response of the leaders of Israel to this crisis in verse 5. They say, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us like the other nations. Now, there's an assumed desire underneath the first statement that they make here. These leaders claim that they know Samuel's sons are going to lead them into injustice and unhealth as a community, which means the desire for their request is a good desire. It's not bad. They want a way of living and a form of government that will will produce justice and life and peace. And that's a good desire. They're recognizing the society and world they live in is not right or good. And they need someone to help make it right and good. Which points us to an important thing about desire in our lives. Friends, oftentimes desires aren't bad. In In fact, oftentimes they're good. Oftentimes, our desires uh, are actually to experience life and peace and joy and wholeness. And those are good things. And so the point of the story is not to condemn the desire of Israel here. It's a caution about the right way of going about satisfying our desire. The text is reminding us that it's the places we go with our desires that matter. It's the rulers we seek to satisfy our desires that matter. Our desire for intimacy with others isn't a problem. It's the rulers we run to to satisfy that desire that can be a problem. Our desire for safety and belonging isn't a problem. It's the methods we use to bring about safety and belonging that can be a problem. Our desire for justice and peace isn't a problem. It's the response that we are led to that can be a problem. The point of the story here is that Israel is going about satisfying a good desire in a bad way. They assume that they know best and that God doesn't. They reject God's rulership and seek to be ruled by the same power that everyone in their culture is ruled by. Israel, friends, is not led to ruin in this story because they desire good things. It's because they desire good things but chose the wrong path to satisfy that desire. And that, by the way, is actually how the scriptures often define the human condition. From the very beginning of the Bible, we see that we are people who want the right things but try to get them in the wrong ways. That's actually what makes the story of Adam and Eve at the beginning of our Bibles quite compelling. In the story, Adam and Eve, they're designed by God to experience and produce goodness and beauty and life for themselves and for all things. That's actually precisely human purpose, to live in the image of God, to live in the rulership of God, and to bring about peace and life and joy. But then, these free beings at the beginning are tempted with another option. Rather than being ruled by God's priorities of love and compassion and justice and peace, they could choose to define good and evil on their own terms. In short, they could choose to become self-rulers. That's actually what the temptation of Adam and Eve is all about. The taking of that fruit from the tree of defining good and evil is representative of their own rulership. It's the temptation to fulfill their good desires on their own terms at the neglect and expense of God and others. Which is why in the story, the fruit is described as actually a really good thing. It's a really interesting thing when you read Genesis. When Eve sees the fruit, the text says it would be pleasing to the eyes, it was good for food, and it would make one wise. Those are all good things. Food is good. Beauty is good. Wisdom is good. According to the Bible, the method is the problem, not the thing. The desire that Eve has for good food, for wisdom, for beauty, those are good things, but it's the way she's going about getting it that's the problem. It's the self-rulership and self-defining that's the problem. Friends, according to the Bible, our broken human condition is to go after good things to pursue, or to go after good things, pursue good desires in the wrong ways. And it's to make ourselves or another worldly thing our ruler instead of God's love, instead of God's peace and compassion in life. And all we need to do is look around our own lives and our own world to see this is true. It's out of a good desire for justice that we make ourselves our ruler and seek vengeance in ways that destroy others. It's out of a good desire to be loved that we seek to secure our belovedness through all sorts of things that never will. Overwork, the glow of crowd affirmation, or the embrace of a partner. It's out of good desires that we make ourselves subject to rulers that can never satisfy. And the reason they never satisfy us is because we're made to be ruled and satisfied by God. Our constant experiences of desire exist because we were made to live in unity with God forever in his world. And nothing less than that will ever satisfy us. And so every time we seek to satisfy our desires by other rulers, we dehumanize ourselves and others. As the great Scottish novelist Bruce Marshall put it in his novel The World, The Flesh and Father Smith, he says, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Our desires are leading us to places and we're attempting to grasp satisfaction in life by the wrong rulers. And so it's the desire of these Israelite leaders, overcome with all sorts of emotion, that we find the crucially important truth. Becoming people of character means becoming people who in the middle of our desires become ruled by the right thing. And that trend continues throughout the rest of the passage here. We also see this in the demand that they make. The people demand for a king, and the text says that, that displeases Samuel deeply. And so immediately Samuel runs to prayer. Which, by the way, is a good strategy. If you're ever angry or displeased by something, run to prayer. That's a good starting point. And in his prayer, we find God's response about what the demand for the king really is. God responds to Samuel. He says, listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they're doing to you. So this demand for a king, it's not just about getting a new leader. It's about replacing the rulership of God in their lives. To this point in Israel's history, their king, the ruler that has led them and protected them and cared for them and structured their way of being, has been God. They were intentionally shaped to be a people who, like the extension of Adam and Eve, were ruled by God's love and compassion to the world. And what they choose to say here is, nah, we're kind of over God as king." We think that a human king will do a better job securing us. We think a human king will do a better job fulfilling our desires. We think a human king will be better as a ruler than God. There's a theologian and scholar named Walter Brueggemann who talks about this in his commentary on 1 Samuel. He says, Their request is nothing less than a change in Israel's foundational commitment to God. This projection is not a new happening, but is characteristic in the history of Israel. The whole history of Israel is one of forsaking and going after other gods. This request for a king is one more step in the continuing performance of mistrust. The issue of monarchy in God's speech is perceived as Israel's unwillingness to have God as the source and rule of life. And the truth is, friends, if we're being honest with ourselves, we do the same thing all the time. In our own ways, we reject God's rulership and decide to live with ourselves or as something else as our ruler. And here's what's most wild about Israel's Choice here. They're rejecting God as ruler, but they actually don't think they are. They don't see this as a rejection of God. They actually see it as something that can be fused together. None of them are saying we've stopped believing in God. We just say, well, actually I think I trust this thing and this part of my life more than God. We still love God, we just want a king to rule our lives. We still love God, we just also want this to dictate our lives. And so they think that they're giving allegiance to just a king and a part of their life, and what they're really doing is supplanting God altogether. They're compartmentalizing their faith. And that's something that we can easily get caught up in in our own lives. All of us in this room who would call ourselves Christians, we do lots of things to indicate our loyalty to God and God's rulership over our lives. We show up to church, we read our Bibles, we pray, we serve. But while all of that is happening, oftentimes in our lives we have some other ruler that we're holding onto in conjunction with God. We say that we're in on following God, but all the while we're holding on to another priority or practice or habit that actually serves as the primary ruler. We like the idea of being ruled by God, but we find something else. Now, there's a story I was reading about this week that I think illustrates this well. It was uh, this strange and ugly baptism practice from the history of the church, uh, where the church would baptize members of the knights Templar in a really weird way. So they would baptize these knights, but the knights, as they went down in the water, would hold their swords outside of the water. They would have every part of themselves baptized except their swords. It was their way of saying, you can have rule over me, God, just not this part of me. You can have rule over me, but my violence and my war, that, that I get to hold on to. You can be my ruler except this. Friends, the demand of the Israelite leaders puts before us that same challenge and question. What are we holding out of the water? What are the things that we are allowing to rule our lives instead of God? And what ruler might we need to overthrow in our lives in order to truly be ruled by God? That's what the demand of the Israelites exposes to us. We also see the importance of having the right ruler in their delusion. See, what Samuel and God know is that this choice that Israel's making to make something other than God a ruler in their lives will only lead them to decay, not life. It will only lead them to destruction, not peace. And that's what Samuel warns them of. He says that this king will only take from them. You might have noticed the repetition of the word take here, over and over and over. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards. He will take a tenth of your grain for himself. He will take your male and female servants. He will take the best of your livestock. And then at the end of the passage, he comes to the sobering conclusion that this king will make them slaves not free, not at peace, slaves. The result of choosing this king over God is not freedom, it is not peace, it is not life and goodness, it is bondage to a ruler that will only take and can never give what you're looking for. And remember the people he's speaking to here. These are people who have been freed from slavery. They know what slavery is like. This isn't just a casual word he throws out. Samuel's claims here, by the way, also come true the exact things that he listed here end up happening later on in the story. The kings of Israel ultimately become purveyors of oppression and injustice throughout the history of the nation. The monarchy is a terrible failure. And despite that warning, the people still maintain their demand. They hear what it will do to them, and they reject the truth regardless. Because they're deluded. They're deluded into thinking that another ruler can give them what they're looking for. Friends, every other ruler that we choose in our lives will ultimately only take. If you make youthfulness and beauty your ruler, it will eventually take peace because you're going to age. You're going to be worried and anxious about that. If you make your bank account your ruler, it will only take, take away contentment because you become obsessed with consuming more or hoarding what you have. If you make a relationship a ruler, it will only take... Joy and peace when you inevitably lose that person in a breakup or in a divorce or in death. If you make a political party or figure your ruler, it will only take satisfaction as they inevitably lose power. Every other king is a taking king. Every other king overpromises and under-delivers. Every other king leads us to slavery. Friends, Israel is teaching us not to fall for a false rule. They're teaching us not to be deluded. They're teaching us to be ruled by the right thing. Which points to one final implication of this story. The difference. See, after Israel holds fast to their demand and their delusion, God does something remarkable. He actually gives them what they want. He lets them have their king. He lets them have the thing that Samuel warned them of. And that's an important point on its own, friends. God doesn't endorse the king, but he doesn't prevent the king. You guys, God will always give us the dignity of choice. We are free creatures. And that's what love does, by the way. Love always gives the dignity of choice. Love's not coercive. It is invitational. And invitations can be rejected. He lets us make bad choices. But we also see in this passage and beyond that God uses those bad choices to bring about redemption and restoration. Because that's also what love does. See, the story is a reminder that while God lets us make those bad choices, he also is always at work in and through them, inviting us back to life, to peace, to wholeness with him, in him. Which means our bad choices are never the end of the story. There is always grace awaiting us when we return to God. And that's actually what the entire story of Israel's kings is all about. God uses the bad choice of these kings to do something remarkable. If you trace the story along, you see this. Their first king, Saul, who we'll explore later in the series, not a great king. Has a couple small victories and then quickly falls. And the next king after Saul, David, he's a little better. He does well for a little while, but then he, too, falls. And then David's lineage starts this long line of kings who fail over and over and over, each time getting more unjust, more corrupt, more oppressive. But then, from this kingly lineage, we learn of another king. He arrives on the scene, and this king prioritized the last, the least, and the lost. He didn't oppress them. This king was a humble servant, not a prideful tyrant. This king brought peace and healing and compassion rather than divisiveness and domination. This king spoke of grace and forgiveness for all, not condemnation for all. This king's name was Yeshua, which literally means God saves. This king was Jesus. And Jesus proclaimed that no matter the rulers that we've chosen before, no matter what rulers we might be actively choosing in our lives right now, there is a ruler that doesn't take but gives. There is a ruler who doesn't make us slaves, but brothers and sisters and friends. There is a ruler that can satisfy the deepest longings of our souls, and he is that ruler. From this long line of kings, he has arrived as the true king, the one in whom our heart can find its true song the one in whom we can find rest for our restlessness. Friends, the story of the Bible isn't the story of a God who gives us a choice, and then if we make the wrong one, he wipes his hands of us. The story of the Bible is the story of God who gives us choices. And even when we make the wrong ones, even when we make bad ones, he's always inviting, always redeeming, always restoring, always giving. This is the story of a ruler who didn't stand far off on a throne, but who became a servant to his subjects. It's a ruler who gives us all the things that our hearts are really longing for. Compassion, love, and justice, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness. Those are available in this kingdom. This is a ruler in whom we can find true, lasting life. And so today, when we read 1 Samuel in 2023, we're presented with a choice. We choose. We can be ruled by the kings of our culture. In constant, restless, anxious pursuit of affirmation or achievement. Always reaching, but never grasping. Always searching, but never finding. Always longing, but never resting. Or we can be ruled by a different king. A king who says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A king who says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind setting the oppressives free, proclaiming the Lord's day of favor, year of favor. A king who says, I've come into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. And that king has one decree for you and I. Follow me. Follow me. Make me your ruler. And so our choice, friends, is simply the choice between a vapid and rapid life of disappointment and decay, or a free and full life of peace and satisfaction. It's the choice between being ruled by the wrong things or being ruled by the right things. And so the question we're left with is simply, who's my ruler? Let's pray.